May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight to the Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you will remember the 1988 film um, Barry Levinson directed, uh, starring Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. It was called Rain Man. And it was about two brothers who were, um, they were separated early in childhood. Um, uh, Tom Cruise played this uh, guy, Charlie, a uh, young man who was sort of estranged from his father. And, and Dustin Hoffman played uh, Raymond, who was in a mental institution who had savant syndrome. And if you don't remember what savant syndrome is all about, it's a, it's a condition where a person has this highly prodigious skill in one or two areas, while at the same time having this really low-functioning um, abilities in many others. So a person with savants may score a very low score on an IQ test, but would be you know, off the charts in like, like an area like mathematics or, or music or art. Um, there are stories of, of children uh, with savant syndrome at, at, you know, at six or seven or eight years old and will walk up to a piano, see it for the very first time, and sit down and play like a concert pianist, having never seen or touched one, and can just play. It's just inside of them. There are children with um, this ability in mathematics. Uh, there was a young boy, seven years old, who performed surgery on a girl at seven years old in India. There's a young girl in the Philippines um, who, um, at, uh, at age 11, graduated university uh, summa cum laude in physics and is in a Ph.D. program at 16. Um, people who just have this, this natural ability, they did nothing to earn it or work it, just, it's just there. But in other areas of their life, sometimes they're, they're very low functioning and, and have difficult times in terms of relationships or something else like that. Well, back to Rain Man. This is the story. You have, um, you have these two brothers, one who is like in sales or whatever and is a very functioning person. His, his brother has uh, savant syndrome. The father dies and leaves all the money, his multi-million dollar fortune, to the one with savant. And so, uh, so Charlie, the other one, kind of once decided to get in the, the back door, he goes and he busts his brother out of the institution, and he's going to try to get custody of him, and then, you know, that way we can get to the fortune. Along the way, um, Charlie's business goes bankrupt, and so he needs to make money fast. And what he does is he takes his brother, who has this amazing ability to count in mathematics, and he takes him to Vegas to count cards. Um, and uh, so there's the story. I'll let you uh, go see the film sometime. I'm sure it's out on, on Netflix or something like that and, and watch it to see what happens. The thing that fascinated me about this is, is the way this, somebody could have such skill like that, you know, and, and be regarded largely by the world's community as, um, as illiterate, as, as non-functioning, as, um, as not very bright, while other people could have learned degrees, you know, and can't spell physics, you know. <laughs> you know, um, there, are, there are people who, who maybe seem like that they've, uh, they've accomplished a lot in terms of academics, but, you know, maybe, maybe not so smart after all. And I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but you're not going to be really surprised. Um, I'm driving down the highway the other day, okay, and, um, and as I'm going down the highway, there's a car slow in front of me, and I put on my turn signal, left turn signal, and I go around the car. And as I'm going around the car, Martha knows this story. I told her, Abby told her the other day. Um, I, I'm going around the car, and, um, and I go to turn off my turn signal, and it won't go off. 
I mean, I'm trying to turn it off and it won't go off. And, it, and the more I try, the more I'm like, what is going on? And, and all of a sudden, my windshield wipers are going off and on. My, my signal won't go off, but my windshield wipers won't stop. And I'm thinking, oh, my word, this car's not even a year old. And it's like going to pieces. What am I going to do? And I'm, I'm, I'm really starting to stress at 70 miles an hour with a turn signal that won't go off and windshield wipers that won't stop. You know, you're already ahead of me, aren't you? Um, it's like on the left-hand side of the steering column, there's a turn signal lever. And there's a nearly identical one on the right side of the steering column for the windshield wipers. And they don't work independent. You know, they're, they're not interchangeable. You have to use the right one. And so here I am turning my windshield wipers on and off and trying to get the turn signal to go off, and it won't happen. And, um, and all of a sudden, I just say to myself out loud, Joe, you're a moron. You know, what are you doing? <laughs> St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians seeks to address several problems that are going on in the church. Um, some of them are serious uh, issues. They are, they are moral, ethical issues, and they, they really threaten the, the viability and the future of the church. Um, Paul established the church. He's the first one to plant this church. And he, he, a bunch of uh, young Christians met, and he's there for some time, several years. And then he left to, to go on other mission trips. And at the time of this writing this letter, he's in Ephesus, where he's been for a couple years. And he gets word that there are serious, as I said, troubles in the church, divisions, the first one. And last week when we looked at it, he, he talked about some divisions that were occurring in the church. He calls them schismata. To, to be divided. And they weren't divided over doctrinal, ethical or, uh, issues. They were, they were people who were divided over personality types. I like this guy. I like that guy. I like someone else. And so they couldn't have fellowship with one another because they had this, this sense of being divided over uh, a personality, a sort of cult of personality. And Paul's word is, stop it. Stop doing that. You were all baptized into Christ. You're all one. So hold this unity together. Again, we're not talking about uh, about heresy. Paul's not saying, oh, you have to live with heresy. He's not saying that at all. But he is saying there is no cause for, for schisms when it's over issues such as personality types of, of, of teachers. Well, Paul begins to pivot from that argument about baptism, about all Christians being one in baptism. And he, he sort of pivots to remind the Corinthian Christians how it was that they first came to faith. Now, this verse is not in your lesson, but verse 17, the end of, uh, of the last section, just before we get to the verse, he says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he sets up this sort of dichotomy. He says it seems like you can rely on one of two things. You can either rely on the eloquence of preaching, you can have a, a clever preacher, who uses really crafty um, words, or you could depend upon the power of the message. It's either form or content for Paul. And that you can actually empty the message of its content by relying too heavily upon the form. And that's what he says to the Corinthians. Remember, when I came to you, I didn't come with clever packaging. I came to you with a simple message of the cross. This is how you came to faith. There was power in the message. Now, if you would, take your bulletin, will you, and look with me at the, um, at the, uh, the lesson today, the epistle lesson, 1 Corinthians. The very first verse, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
the word of the cross. This is what he says, halagas, the word, the singular word of the cross, is foolishness. The gospel centers on the cross. The cross is the message. It is the centerpiece of the entire message of the gospel. And for us, the cross is a thing of beauty. I mean, I wear one around my neck. Maybe you have one around yours. Maybe you have earrings or a pendant. The cross up here on, uh, above the altar, on the altar, right here, we carry it in. The cross is a beautiful symbol to us. In the ancient world, in Paul's world, the cross was not this beautiful symbol. The cross was a despicable thing. It was a shameful thing. It was something that somebody would not say in polite conversation. You would not mention a cross in conversation because it was such a horrid, horrid reality. There's a a writing from Cicero who says, we should not mention the cross in polite conversation. This is something that shouldn't be said. One of the earliest depictions of the cross in antiquity comes from a, a neighborhood in, uh, in Rome where someone used uh, some chalk to make graffiti on a wall. And they were making fun of this guy. They, they drew this fellow on his knees before a cross. And on the cross is a man with the head of a donkey. And it says that uh, this fellow worships his God. It was such a ridiculous, do not speak of the cross. And yet Paul says, this is the center point of my preaching, this is how you came to faith. And look, you know what people would say about this? That it's utter foolishness. The word of the cross is folly. Folly, the ESV has it. Foolishness, many of the other translations have it. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates it, sheer silliness. The word of the cross is moria. This is Paul's word. From which we get the word moron. It is moronic. The word of the cross is moronic to whom? To those who are dying, to those who are perishing, to those who have no spiritual life in them. But for us, it is what? It is the power of God. The word of the cross, the message of the cross is sheer foolishness. It's stupidity to those who are dying. But to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who are being made alive in Jesus, it is the power of God. His point is that someone doesn't come to faith because some clever preacher kind of worked up a nice little uh, clever argument. That someone doesn't come to faith because somebody had this um, thoroughgoing rationale for the, um, the sensibility of the Christian faith. But because there is power hidden in the message itself. A power that when Christ is proclaimed as crucified and resurrected, that that message changes the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. It does something on the inside. Otherwise, it is a decidedly foolhardy approach. Who else would bank the future of the Christian faith on something that was so offensive to people in the first century? Look again, verse 22. It's a few verses down there. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, here it is again, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Paul's mind, there are basically two types of people in the world. There are Jews and there are Greeks. Um, Greek doesn't mean that you're Greek ethnically. It means you're Greek in terms of worldview. 
I think he would add a caveat. There is a third type, barbarian, but he's really not dealing with them. In, in, in most of the, the uh, civilized world of his day, you were, you were Jewish or you were Greek in terms of your full, uh, uh, thought life and worldview. And, and so he's saying that to these people, both Jews and Greeks, there are different sort of bents. In the Jewish world, which Paul is a Jew himself, he knows there is this, this give me a sign. Prove it. You've seen this all in through the Gospels, right? The, the Sadducees and Pharisees saying to Jesus, give us a sign. No matter how many signs he did, it wasn't the right sign, not the one that they were looking for. Give me the spectacular miracle. Let me see that and I'll believe. But the Greeks didn't want that. They wanted, they wanted philosophy. Give me reason. Let me reason my way to belief and then I'll be on your side. Make a good argument. Paul says... The the Jews are demanding signs. The Greeks want wisdom. And we preach a silly message that God came to the world as a human being, lived among us, performed many miracles. But those weren't miracles to establish his, his credibility. They were miracles to say, this is what God wants to do in the lives of people, to set them free from oppression. That's what the miracles are for, not to establish the credibility of Jesus. But more than that, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead. This is what we rely on. This is our message. This is how you came to faith. And then Paul says, and look around. You are a motley crew, for consider your calling. He says, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you came from noble birth. It's not many of you are well birthed. You know, you don't come from good families. Sure, maybe a few of you, but most of you not so much. You know, you didn't really have it all together. And yet God chose you. God chose you and he demonstrated his power in you. There's so much more here, but what can we do with just this? What does this mean to us? Well, I think first it means that, don't, that, that we, we strive for unity and resist chasing the wrong thing. Greeks wanted, um, wanted reason. Jews wanted sign. Our world still wants the same two things, don't they? Show me some spectacular miracle. Oh, man, I just need... Uh, ooh, let me see that. I heard about this church over there, and there's this crazy stuff going on. There are all these miracles and signs and wonders. Or, oh, my, this... this you know, these other group of people, they, they, they're so smart. They, they have such a, a, you know, a talented leader who, you know, it's such a, a, a great teaching place. You know, that they're... Paul says, don't go chasing those things. Strive for the unity of the church. I know a woman who, um, who left her church, uh, not because it was preaching heresy. It wasn't. Um, not because there weren't people who loved her. They did. Uh, not because it wasn't a church that was doing good things in the world. It was. She left because she wanted signs and wonders. Like, I just I want to go to a church where there are people speaking in tongues and predicting the future and are falling down on the floor. And I, I, This is what I want. Read the book of uh, uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. There were people thinking the exact same thing. And Paul writes this letter in the New Testament. It's canonized for 20 centuries saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Strive for the unity of the church. The second thing I think it says to us, and this is perhaps the most important, to recognize that there is an inherent power in the message of the cross. 
that the gospel, in its very simple message, that God came, he lived and died among us at Jesus Christ, he suffered, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, and he will return. That simple message is silliness to people. It is foolishness, it is moronic, and it is unbelievably powerful. It's not an attempt to, to kind of convince the intellect. I think that, that saying this message plants seeds deep in the heart that you just can't get rid of. And so someone could be really resistant intellectually, and they can be changed internally. And preaching isn't just what I do. It's not just here in this pulpit. Of course it's here. But we can preach the gospel sitting with a friend at Starbucks over a coffee. You can preach the gospel watching a toddler play on a swing, sitting on a park bench next to somebody. You can preach the gospel on a on a fishing boat with a beer and a rod in your hand with a friend next to you. you. This is where you could preach the gospel. And all you have to do is proclaim the simple message of the cross. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. You, this, That simple message will change the hearts and lives of people. Um, it has been said that there is no one um, from the time of St. Paul until the Reformation who was more influential over Christian thought than a young man from, um, from North Africa whose name was Augustine. Uh, maybe some of you say Augustine. Augustine, born in 354, his, um, his father was a pagan, his mother was a Christian, and she tried for many years to convince him to become a Christian. Um, Augustine had really no interest in Christianity. He had, well, he had some interest, I should say, but he... Um, he really liked his father's lifestyle. Um, he loved women. And so he thought, you know, the idea of uh, Christian morality being imposed on me is something I don't really want to do. And so, no, uh, no thank you. I'd rather live as a pagan. And he was very bright, um, very, very bright, very scholarly, excelled in academia, and in fact um, went to Milan from North Africa to North Italy to become basically a professor of rhetoric, the highest level of scholarship in the ancient world. And so here he is, this, this masterful, scholarly, well-known rhetorician. He's in, in Milan, and he hears this story about this fellow called Ambrose, who's a Christian preacher across town. And people say, you know, he's got quite a talent as a speaker. And, and so Augustine, remember this, he has heard the Christian message. He knows the Christian religion. His mother's a Christian. He has no interest in becoming a Christian. He goes to hear Ambrose preach because he wants to catch his form. He wants to see the package, how he delivers it. And he hears him preach. And he's convicted to his heart. And he goes to see Ambrose after and says, can I meet with you? And after a few months, I think it was, he asked to be baptized. He thought he was going to go catch the form, and it's the content that snuck in and grabbed hold of him. And it changed his life And he changed the world. The foolishness of the gospel, the foolishness of the message, the word of the cross, it is the power of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.